and welcome to Damn Fine Podcast. This show is revisiting, reanalyzing, and may I say re-enjoying, in most cases, the TV show Twin Peaks. I'm Tom Merritt. With me is Ron Richards. How are you, Ron? I am so excited, Tom. More excited than usual. More excited than usual. I've been, I've been looking forward to, the, to this particular episode all week after I watched it, and I took my notes, and I was like, this is such a great episode. I can't wait. To, I couldn't wait to start podcasting. So here I am. Well, uh, <laughs> we have a third person with us today to weigh in on that as well. A uh, big welcome to Greg Young of the Bowery Boys and the First Podcast. Thanks for joining us, Greg. Hello. Um, thank you for the offer. This is like, you know, if I could go back in time and, and tell my little, you know, 20-year-old self that I was going to be doing a podcast about Twin Peaks, I'd say... Oh, it's a podcast, but then <laughs> oh my god, I'm on a Twin Peaks show. So thank Wait, you. Wait, explain RSS to me again. Yeah, it would be a long conversation. I get it. Yeah. So, oh man. Wait, is it, you mean radio on the internet? Anyway, so um, <laughs> well, yeah. Well, Greg, it's great. It's great to have you on. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of the Bowery Boys and your new podcast, The First. But um, I had a feeling you'd be into Twin Peaks when I started the show, and I'm like, I should check with Greg to see if he's into Twin Peaks. And sure enough, you were. So. Oh yeah, um, I was um, a big mega fan in college. Um, uh, yeah, I watched the entire thing, so I was really, really obsessed with it that first summer for the first season, as we all were. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have weekly parties, you know, oh, it's cliche party, you know, cliche with the cherry pie and the coffee. But of course, right. that was that was also the summer that I started drinking. So of course, there was like really bad Boone's Farm wine, also <laughs> possibly or other things. But then, um, so I had a party, you know, had had parties every week. And then, um, interestingly enough, we, uh, me, me and my friends were so obsessed with the show that I actually had a friend who was a really, really close friend of mine. He was even kind of my first crush. Um, in college, um, he was so obsessed with Twin Peaks that he actually moved to Snoqualmie, like after at summer. And so, and then like, would write me letters and send me all these pictures of like the the waterfall and the the diner and everything. And then, um, then I kind of lost touch with him. I later found out that he moved to Hawaii and became a masseuse. He got into Magnum PI or something. Is that? (laughs) I I felt like maybe he had literally turned himself into a Twin Peaks character because you know there's Ah. the the whole Hawaiian thread that happens to. Oh yeah, he's probably Jacoby. Yeah, he's probably friends with Dr. Jacoby and his wife Lana Lay (laughs) or whatever. You know, and they they didn't. He may be trying to fashion his whole life uh, around them. But then uh, my other thing is then I was uh, – because I went to the University of Missouri, which is a journalism school. And so you have to gear up for that. You have to take a couple of extra years. So I worked for the school newspaper. And it was like in this era when I just wanted to be like an entertainment weekly writer. So (laughs) I was the feature editor and I wrote like two whole – from October 30th, a two-whole page spread called The Place to Get Kids. Twin Peaks. <laughs> David television debut has more than style of substance. It has a cult following. Whatever. And it has like five articles on the page. I wrote all of them. There's like <laughs> one of those like like columns on the side that's like, who done it? List of suspects. I mean, it's so earnest. <laughs> That's so great. I I have so many overlaps with you because I also watched this in college. We also had the the cheesy cherry pie and coffee parties mm-hmm. and and I, I have the taste of Keystone Light in my mouth when I watch <laughs> these sometimes. Uh, and I were I went to the University of Illinois and worked at the radio station, and it was my music director there uh, and I that would watch Twin Peaks together. So that's, yeah, it's 
That's so weird because cool. then I worked for the radio station uh-huh. like, after after Twin Peaks. It was a, it was sort of the year after. Um, it's so funny how Twin Peaks kind of burnt out so quickly. I was trying to kind of piece it in my memory, but I hadn't. I, I also worked for the University of Missouri radio station. So parallel lives. Wow. Yeah. It's just it's 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 the day, it's the Lynch Frost theory of small town America yeah. right here. You know? It's the <laughs> Black and Gold Lodge and the Orange and Blue Lodge. Yeah, exactly. I feel. I always feel. Uh, I'm glad that. Uh, Greg, you and Tom are similar in age. We don't want to reveal anyone's age, but I'm uh, I'm feeling like the baby of the group because I was in middle school when it was on, and I probably should have well, been watching most it. Most of our <laughs> guests were yeah. young people. Yeah, exactly. when they, well, yeah. and in, in particular, this episode, I hope you didn't watch. I did. The, I did. You did? Yeah. So no, I watched every episode in seventh and eighth grade. I read Laura's Diary. I I, I was all in, and and it it really had an effect on my uh, teenage years. <laughs> I mean, we'll get into it, but yeah. I I even feel like there's certain portions of this this particular episode that would be shocking for TV today. Yeah. I mean, a, one, a couple of reasons, a couple unintentional, but especially that sort of last sequence is just yes. so gripping. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and very probably would be shot differently if it was for HBO today. And mm-hmm. I wonder if it would be as good in that way. Like some of the constraints that he had to maneuver around, I, I thought, added something to it but like yeah. say we'll we'll get to that Th- that's a probably a good segue to talk about this ep- to start talking about the episode that we're we're here to discuss um and the episode uh, aired on November 10th, 1990. It's the seventh episode of season 2. Uh, and the German title for this episode is Lonely Souls. Uh, and this episode is notable, because- even though that is in French in the episode. Yeah. But yeah, true, we digress. Yes. Oh, yeah. true. Right. <laughs> um, so uh, this episode is super notable for a couple of reasons. One, uh, it's the return of Mark Frost writing the episode and David Lynch directing. Uh, so it is back to the is back to the original, you know, auteurs, the, the A team, yeah. the visionaries. Um, but also, uh, this was the episode that was hyped the most. In fact, uh, ABC ran uh, newspaper ads that a- a- uh, advertised this episode and said, "Finally, Saturday, November tenth, find out who killed Laura Palmer, really." And the Twin Peaks logo, <laughs> 10, 10 p.m. nine central, ABC Television Network. So all eyes were on this episode, and because of that. Uh, huge rating spike. If you remember uh, last week or the past couple of weeks, the, the episodes have been hovering around the 11 million uh, mark for the audience and getting beaten by Carol Burnett on NBC. Uh, well, <laughs> it, it didn't quite beat Carol Burnett this week. Ugh. Carol Burnett still won the night with uh, with 20 million uh, viewers. But it's the only Pe- suspense around Twin Peaks I have left at this point until <laughs> the new show starts is whether they beat Carol Burnett the next week. Exactly. But um, uh, they did spike up to 17.2 million viewers, which is, you know, five to six million more than the previous episodes. So literally this was event programming at as, as the best of event programming as, as it gets. And, and as you've said in other shows, I mean, 17.2 million. I mean, I think Empire, like the top rated show on network television, gets like, what, two thirds of that, maybe? Uh, yeah, <laughs> sad. Yeah, <laughs> so sad. Um, but yeah, and, and and I don't know, Tom, Tom we're, I don't know if it makes sense to talk at the end of the episode or the beginning of the episode, but uh, we have some theories about uh, how, if, they, if they did Twin Peaks today, uh, this probably would have been a season finale. Yeah, and I apologize to the person who sent this in, but someone sent us a really interesting article that that broke down Twin Peaks into four separate seasons that they thought not only made Twin Peaks make more sense, but sort of isolated in the in their third season 
what would be the weakest storyline. And this mm-hmm. they picked as the season finale of season two. And it really does feel like a season finale. Yeah. Well, it's so it's so brutal. And it's like, you know, it's like there's there's very little padding after after all of the this, the violence that happens. So it leaves you with this like raw feeling that I think some of the best season finales um, do have, you know, I mean, especially if you want I me mean, thinking about like Game of Thrones or things like that. I mean, I, I, I haven't listened to all your past episodes, but did you have you compared the show to the killing? Is it the killing that had like the first season? It didn't it didn't reveal the murderer at the end season and i think that's we're all conditioned and i still perhaps think we still are um to have like oh well this is one neat and tidy story that's done and we'll move on to the next one and i also think it's because of marketing and it's all because of hype and everything that um expectations were weird and maybe they just didn't anticipate that in the way that they should have well yeah I th- and you're, you're actually the first person to mention the killing and that's a show uh that you know that i that i actually didn't watch but i remember when it came out it was a it was a uh like a dutch show or something like that that then was adapted and brought over yeah. on amc right yeah and i remember yeah. everybody talking about that because it did do that it didn't reveal the killer and it got you know comparisons to twin peaks and i just you know and we'll talk about it you know as we continue to talk about this episode but this is fascinating because they 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 answered the question. I mean, the way the history books are is that ABC went to Frost and Lynch and says, you got to reveal who killed her. And they're like, okay, we'll show you. But it didn't answer any questions. You know, like it was, it was, it was, it's the, it's one of the biggest, um, not bait and switch, but I feel like, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, no, no, don't worry. Yeah. We got your creative note. We'll reveal the killer, but it doesn't resolve anything. But if you look at this batch, like if you look at the first episode, which was a two hour episode, so technically two episodes, this would be the eighth episode. And as it tracks to Netflix or to cable series of, of, of now, ending at eight episodes happens all the time. Like this would have been the perfect point to yeah. end it. And I think that if they did that, Twin Peaks wouldn't have died the slow death it did in season two and could have lived on longer maybe. But who knows? I mean, hindsight, right? Yeah. Well, it could have put some different kind of effort into the shows that follow. I think that we can all agree that like, you know, some of the plot lines are really, really lame. And if they literally had like a break yep. to to think about it that that it might have been i think you're totally right yeah because they, they and, and we'll we'll talk about this a little more at the end but the way they leave things is both revealing in a season finale way but also teasing you to want to be back for the next season and yet in reality that was going to be net week next week which right. is what abc wanted right. uh, let's start though at the sheriff's station uh where they have mike repeating his description of a hotel and uh, Hawk uh, saying that he's getting a warrant to to search Harold's house. Uh, uh, Gordon uh, saying that they found pages of a diary down the tracks. Uh, basically just kind of catching people up who are tuning in for the event program. Yeah, a lot of exposition, but the, the the most I took away from this opening scene was that this is this this is the tip-off that David Lynch is directing this episode because mm-hmm. everybody is lined up in a row in the sheriff's station all drinking coffee. <laughs> right like and then he, yeah it's true and then he says goodbye yes. at the end of the scene <laughs> yeah yeah and then gordon cole just he wraps up because he's got to direct the episode but yeah he tell he tells uh cooper that he's off to bend oregon for real hush hush uh reasons uh and and i like how he he makes the point to go and shake everybody's hand and the awkward pause before uh before mike or philip uh who doesn't have an arm so david wasn't sure he was ever coming back really <laughs> Did you guys did you guys get a, a, 
a sense of uh, humor to this scene because I like the way the last episode ended and this one starts because the last one ends with the one-armed man with like more ominous warnings and prophecies and then this one begins with the same thing and then there's like a pregnant pause and then they're like we need to go like there was something about it that was just like (laughs) we've been doing this all night we're getting tired of it well i guess we'll be in the lobby like it's 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 grunt work at that point yeah Mm -hmm. and and again this shows the different the difference between we talked about this throughout the the whole run tom is the difference between a david lynch directed episode and the other directors not that leslie linkley or the other directors are not as good but lynch brings a different little touch to it and it even comes across not only in that little bit of humor, like you mentioned, Greg, but in in the transition to the next shot. You know, so we we they move from the sheriff station to the Great Northern, and we get that iconic shot of the waterfall that fades into a clock with the waterfall on it, and mm-hmm. it's just lined up perfectly. And like no one else is doing those little touches in these episodes other yeah. than Lynch, you know. And so I, I love that. So I'm sure you've this you've mentioned this observation before, but like those scenes, like. Those scenes, those kind of things didn't happen on TV back then. I mean, right. today you watch it, it's almost like, oh, yeah, then they fade into the clock. Because there's a lot of TV shows that do that kind of thing now. And a lot of movies have been influenced by Twin Peaks and specifically the, these kind of shots. Yeah. So I just had to keep reminding myself as I watched it. Yeah, how many, and this, this episode's full of them, too. How many, how many film school kids watched Twin Peaks and then went on to emulate it in their movies and then eventually sure. TV episodes they directed? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and this this next scene is is no less Lynchian in any way. Uh, yes. Mike saying no as people are paraded past, and he just looks at them to tell if they're Bob or not. Uh, while sailors are bouncing balls in the background, and we cut back and forth to Ben stomping through the halls angrily at what's going on. And as soon as he enters the room, uh, Mike having a, an inexplicable attack, or is it? A fit, but again, Lynch using a what we talked. Remember when uh, Tom when Gabriel Hardman was on the show, he talked about how there was always whenever Lynch directed an episode, there's always weird people in the Great Northern. So yeah. no, for no reason, sailors, which is fine. Bouncing right? balls. It's not well, even just sailors, but like, yeah. why do they have bouncy balls? Well, here's the thing about the bouncy balls. I mean, for, first off, sailors. Maybe it's Fleet Week. Who knows what's going yeah, on sure. in Twin Peaks, right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, we, sure, in the middle of Washington. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Like sure. way inland in Washington. Yeah, sure, who knows? Why not? But again, but now the the bouncing balls. We don't. It doesn't reveal that a sailor's bouncing little rubber balls, and it's those pinkies that you know they used to play stoop ball with, right? Like yeah, those, yeah. those kind of balls, and they don't reveal that immediately. And so the the diegetic sound of the balls bouncing and the cacophony of that, and then with the pacing of Ben stomping through the hallways, really makes this a tense scene. Oh, yeah, that, yeah, that was to say that and the music are, are so crucial because with just slight, like just a slight change to some of the sound, it would be played for comedy. Yeah, because it really is hilarious. But instead, you have this unsettling feeling. It feels, you know, and you kind of carry that through the whole episode, and sort of it culminates, you know, near the end of this of the episode. But it's all, the first moment where you're just like, "Oh, this is weird. Yeah. What's happening?" And then it it almost is so weird that you kind of don't notice at first that. He has the he collapses when Ben walks into the room because then that becomes key later, of course. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and we get we get that kind of overhead shot, that kind of crane shot pulling away from it as he's like on the ground, and you see Ben going, "What's going on?" And it's just, it's just chaos, right? And it's mm-hmm. it, it, this this scene this scene might you know this episode's got a lot of great scenes, but this one is possibly my probably my favorite. 
Yeah. <laughs> but, now, uh, like a, a lot of the shows we've talked about lately, uh, there are a lot of scenes in this, but these scenes are packed full rather than feeling like filler to, to, to get us to the end of the story because we cut immediately from casting a little bit of suspicion on Ben to the sheriff car lights on and we see heralds, orchids everywhere, the place is in disarray, Hawk knocks on the door to come in and find, you know, if you're paying attention, you notice it real quick, someone has hung themselves in the background and it's Harold. Yeah. Before <laughs> I celebrate the death of Harold, yeah. um, yeah. uh, I, I want to go back again to Lynch directing uh, the shot of Hawk driving the sheriff car down the mountain road. Like that's the little touch that no other the Lynch episodes have. Like that transition point, you know. That and it go. It's a long shot of the car driving with the siren and get closer, and it just sets that tone. But um, I, I was so happy. I mean, I, it's, oh, it's, oh, why has he got the sirens yeah. on when he's just going to search a house? Like it's, right. it's actually and, against the protocol. <laughs> yeah, good point. But it, but it doesn't. Um, yeah. So goodbye, Harold. You didn't add much to the story. Oh, Harold. Uh, I mean, it's again. This is a. Gr- this is not. A very interesting scene um, narratively, but stylistically it is, especially how it transitions because there's that flashbulb that's going on, right? They're taking photographs and he's reaching down and finding the pages of what we find out as the diary. And then the transition into the next scene is this like flash, right? That goes into it that I've never, I don't think the show has done. I mean, it was, it's so, it's kind of a novelty shot, but again, it's another unsettling little moment. Yep. And and the, those flashes will come when we when we go back to Harold, so it will be even more dramatic. But um, but yeah, but but goodbye, Harold. I won't miss you. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I understand the purpose he he played in this in this, but I I'm not sad to see old Lenny Van Dolan go. <laughs> Lenny Van Dolan's best role in Twin Peaks may have been in Psych. Yes, possibly. Just, yeah, yeah. That episode. Oh, yeah. Psych. Yeah. <laughs> uh, onward to you know from saying goodbye to setting up. A potential saying goodbye. Uh, an alternate version of Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World playing and and goes for quite a while with Louis Armstrong delivering a monologue yeah. uh, about things in, pre- in, 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 in preface to beginning to sing the, the song. Maddie, having coffee, uh, sits down on the couch, s- tells them it's time for her to go back to Missoula because guess what, Ron? You've been asking this for a while. She does have a job. Yes, she and does. An she has a whole life in Missoula that she just abandoned. <laughs> well, so and now, then, uh, well, well, this is even weirder because if you remember last episode, she told James that she was leaving, and this is the, this is morning now. It's morning in the Palmer's yeah. office in the Palmer's house. As unsettling as that is, she got home late, sure. so you know she's going to go back tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, those of us who have watched it before and probably some of you who have never watched it before are are thinking, ooh, how's Leland going to take this? Because Maddie's the one that reminds him of Laura. Uh, Leland says he understands completely. It's it's Sarah that seems to be upset, but Leland tells her to calm down. And then as the scene is happening, you pan across the record player, mm-hmm. which frames them on the couch in its jaws. Good catch with the Jaws shot. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I, didn't, yeah, yeah. I, I picked up on the record player, but yeah, that's a that's a good positioning, Tom. Well, you know, it's not like Missoula's at the far end of the universe. Yes. Um, by the way, <laughs> this, this scene has an excessive amount of flowers in it. Yes. <laughs> The whole Palmer household is unsettling. I mean, there's, there's a, I mean, I get that. I understand that she just passed away and they were, she was her only child. But there are a lot of Laura photos in this room as well, too. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they yeah. It was like it's almost like a funeral. Yeah, it's almost, almost. almost yeah. Oh, huh. Well, that seems odd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, but I am hung up on the fact that she's telling them it's like she keeps pushing off when she's leaving. She told James she was leaving tomorrow. Now it's tomorrow. She's telling the, the Palmer she's leaving yeah, tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. So, mm. but she just really doesn't want to go. She loves it there. The Huckleberry Pie is so much better in Twin Peaks than it is in Missoula. <laughs> Uh, so then we go to back to Harold's where the crime scene photos are being taken and Cooper finds a note that says in French, I am a lonely soul. Uh, Hawk finds the secret diary with the pages torn out. And, uh, this is where we get that nice film noir flash to end the scene. Sorry, this is it. Yeah. Sorry. I jumped ahead. It wasn't in the last scene. It was in this one. Right. But, um, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, this is the whole reason Harold exists. Yes. (laughs) You know, is this this scene? Yeah. Yeah. You're right. right here is to get this, uh, this beautiful scene of like ripped pages and, you know, um, the flash bulbs are just so Lynchian and like the, the, like, cause they show the photographer, they're taking pictures of the crime scene, but they're such big flashes and yeah. um you know and then of course culminating the end of the scene where it's a flash and a still you know which is which is just great but um but if you remember uh i am a lonely soul in french je, you know, je, I, can't, I don't know french i can't do french uh, je un ms solitaire or whatever it is i'm italian i can do that um, <laughs> it's a very good italian reading of french thank you yeah yeah, yeah. The, the long island kid reads french there you go <laughs> um if you remember this is what mrs tremont's grandson said to donna Right. <gasps> oh my gosh. So, <laughs> so you know, so that's kind of a bookend of the Harold kind of war, uh, experience, where the Tremont, Mrs. Tremont, and her grandson point Donna in that direction, and this is the ending of it. And we know I'm a lonely soldier. So, was the grandson predicting this, or you know? But either way, is he nice even thing. a grandson? Yeah. Who is he really? Who is he? Yeah. yeah. Or just a, a, like a mini David Lynch who just yeah. Is, well, he definitely is that. Literally, right? yeah, literally. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, on to a more domestic scene. Uh, we are at Leo's or is it Shelley's at this point uh, doing bills. Uh, they realize that they're going to make $42 a month, which Bobby calls a good start, which is the most optimistic I've ever seen Bobby in this show. Well, and, and uh, similar to Maddie admitting that she had a job back in Missoula, we finally get Bobby to admit that he is still enrolled in high school because he's missing economics class right now. Right. In order to do the bills, <laughs> right? Yes. How yeah. These 28-year-old actors playing – it's very, very, very hard to, like, forget that, you know, yeah. they were supposed to be in school. You know, these scenes, like – so these are some of the more weaker scenes, yeah. I think, overall. That there, And there's something profoundly dated – in these, you know, very grunge '90s, than um, than perhaps some of the others. I think, although that might just have to do with the sort of "quote unquote" trendy hairstyles and. Oh yeah, yeah. no, well, this is this is them trying to be cutting edge because grunge is just beginning at right. this point. So yeah. they're on, you know, they're on the leading wave. These but, kids, but also this reminds you that this is 1990, as Bobby is looking through Leo's checkbook. Trying to find uh, more money and going, oh, according to this checkbook, he doesn't have any money. It's just like, yeah, it's like I don't even know where my checkbook is. 
<laughs> yeah, there are no, there's no one's talking about credit cards, debit cards. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But uh, but they are trying to figure out what they're gonna do, and so you know, Shelly wants Bobby to take the necklace back that he got her, but Bobby refuses to, and then Bobby wants to uh, sell Leo's truck, but it's been impounded because he was involved in a crime, you know, and so all that sort of stuff. And as they're talking about needing money, uh, Leo uh, shows some signs of life, and this is where the <laughs> the, the the we got to do the slow clap applaud for Eric DeRay playing uh, yes. a mindless Leo in like talk about like i i've never I, I only did a little bit of acting in my early days i was in the sixth grade play once and things like that but um, <laughs> but uh he he's selling this you know this being you know catacana tonic and then waking up and saying new shoes <laughs> yeah, i mean i would say his i would say his scenes um you know and these sort of these scenes are better than when he's like walking around and talking. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, when I, uh, I was mentioning this on a previous show, when I think of Leo, I think of him in the chair. And when I quote Leo, it's generally new shoes. Yeah. <laughs> it's his best line. <laughs> new shoes. Uh, but yeah, so him say, so Leo comes still back to life and says new shoes, which makes Bobby think there's something to do with shoes. Shelly reveals that he uh, had sent his boots out for repair. And so Bobby thinks there's something there. He's onto it. We'll find we out. We will find out yes. within the episode. So on, yes. <laughs> on to solve that mystery later. Yeah. On to the Great Northern now, where uh, this one's kind of delayed. Audrey finally confronting her dad. And, it, you know, as many times as I've seen this, it always surprises me how boldly she just tells him, I'm Prudence, you know. Uh, how long have you owned One-Eyed Jacks? I'm just, I'm just going to throw it all down in front of you. I'm not going to pretend. I'm not going to try to hold it over you. Uh, and Ben says that he's owned One-Eyed Jacks for five years, that he knew Laura worked there, uh, that he, 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 and he's being very honest, Ben, in this, uh, in this particular scene. He says he did not encourage her to work there. It was Battis who sent her. Uh, he does grudgingly admit that he slept with Laura. Uh, and when Audrey asks, did you kill her? He merely answers, I loved her. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's sort of perfectly timed in the episode because, listen, you know, people expect that they're going to find out who the killer is. And it's sort of set up. It's almost like, you know, the football's there for him to kick. And, you know, he, of course, you know, we know now he's not. But the way it's set up is, is very much like a, a like a cop out a little bit. Yeah. And if anything, this is, you know, in a parade of uh, red herrings. Uh, this is this is this is our you know our our, our or ultimate red herring. It's the herring of it, deepest crimson. Exactly, yes, exactly because yeah. because they're pushing us to to suspect Ben and now you know kind of making him uh, complicit with Laura. You know having having had a relationship, it's still just weird. Because, because it's like he's so. First off, I like the subtlety between him and Audrey. Where Audrey's, you know, Audrey's now recovered from being a heroin addict, and um, and is you know bounces back quick that one. Right, yeah, really bounces back. That 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 come down was nothing for her. It was, <laughs> I saw train spotting. Anyway, but um, so uh, you know, and and kudos to Audrey for like kind of confronting him. And I like the moment where he tries he tries to play coy, and then you see the moment where he just kind of says I, I give up you know like yes and yeah. starts being honest which is great and so then you got to think it's like he didn't know laura was going to work at one eye jacks but once he did find out sure i slept with her you know like sure this is <laughs> this ben. is the daughter of my business partner and close friend and friend of my daughter he and he's got a goddamn photo of her on his desk 
Oh, that's right. It's so weird. It's well, so now the photo makes more sense, yes, right? Yeah, it does, yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah. the, um, one thing I forgot to, to add at the beginning of the show is that I was obsessed with Sherilyn Finn. In fact, I, I actually still have these in my like weird box of things. Uh, magazine photographs I pulled out from Interview Magazine and, and Premiere, whatever. So I, just, I also remember specifically watching this episode, and there's a, a switch in character. I, I, in my notes here, I actually wrote, Audrey is newly woke. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, she is. It's like a, she, it's a child. She's sort of childish, flirty, and, and this scene is one of the first where you kind of see her as an adult. Now I don't know if that's like legit. Like it's probably just a a good narrative character building thing. But also, I mean, you know, between the first season and this season, she was nominated for an Emmy. Yeah, you know, she was for Golden Globe. So she, like, you know, as an actress, she's like, well, I got these under my belt. I need to do some more serious work here. So I wonder if there's also a little bit of that going on in this scene as well. And I will join you, Greg, in your admiration of Sherilyn Finn at the the time, although I'm guessing probably for different reasons. But um, (laughs) uh, as as, as I remember the chasing down Sherilyn Finn's uh, copy of Playboy when it came out because she she rode that popularity wave as much as she could, which I don't blame her for. um, No, but this is this is a nice scene, and, and Audrey is kind of like this is the wrapping up of Audrey's investigation, right? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but I well, do, and, and I think it's a fair point that you know, it, be it because of Sherilyn Fenn's own career, or yeah. or just being more true to the idea of this young girl going through what she did at One Eyed Jacks, uh, she she shows up. I, I love yeah. I love Audrey being woke. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly uh, what this is. The Wait, only I, weakness in the scene to me is. Ben saying I loved her instead of saying no, yes. because I it really feels like they're misdirecting you. And yeah. we know they are at this point, but it really feels that way because if he did kill her, he would say no. Right. And if he didn't kill her, I feel like he would say no because he's being so honest in this scene. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, it, spot on, Tom. I agree. Uh, real quick note, as he's talking about loving Laura, Laura's theme starts playing in the background. I just love that music. Uh, yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, all right. Uh, uh, and that thing on his desk with those big carved letters with his name on it. What's his name? Yeah. So, in case so, anyone doubted. So 80s. So 80s, right? Yeah. Uh, onward to the diner, uh, where Shelly has uh, dressed for work and shown up, but told Norma that she needs to quit. Uh, which doesn't really match up with only getting $42 a month. Uh, but it's it's a time thing, not a money thing. Norma says it's all right, promises her job will be there for her. And then uh, the, the real stars of this scene arrive with Ed and Nadine coming in. Uh, Ed gets Norma to play along with Nadine's illusion uh, when N- Nadine asks, are you in our class at school? Uh, Nadine asked if Norma is mad because Eddie told me you guys broke up, which makes things awkward for Norma. Uh, and then as Nadine gets her shake, she squeezes it so hard. She breaks the glass with one hand, which then turns bloody and she gets fascinated with, uh, and finishes up the scene by telling Ed, I could just kiss you to death with her bloody hand. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is uh, uh, this is the weakest scene of the episode. Mm-hmm. Hands down. You know what? I, yeah. You know what I I thought I was like this scene would be so much more interesting if Nadine was with Norma and not Ed. Because <laughs> I was like I sure like Ed, 
Ed is an empty kind of empty to me. I don't really understand. I've never really understood the the Ed Norma um, romance, and I was like, wow, this would be so much more kind of like weird and Twin Peaksy. I guess I guess I'm throwing a little bit of Mulholland Drive into this, but I'm just like, oh well, those are the two more interesting characters, and so yeah, it sort of plays along kind of. Like, it's supposed to be funny, but it's not really funny. It's just, well, And I believe it's the only scene in this episode that is not related to the point of this episode in some way. Even the Shelley and Bobby thing has to do with Leo and Leo's, you know, the fallout from Leo and, and Leo's dealing with heroin and Laura and Leo was there. Like, that has a connection. This has no connection to Laura or her death. Right, yeah. And, and, and Bo- Bobby and Leo's boots, which is the next scene, also yeah. doesn't, but we still think they do because it's peripherally. At least there's some relation of Leo and Bobby to Laura. Right. But maybe th- there's a few people out there thinking Leo did it still right. and they'll find some evidence as oh, a twist. Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. But I- yeah, but the the uh the Nadine strength and all and it's just weird. It's just weird and it's I- setting up for the future Nadine story, which yeah. never actually crosses with any of the other stories. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, oh well. All right, let's it's just on. comic relief. Okay, yeah. So, hey, earlier when uh, when Leo or when Shelley and Bobby were talking, he mentions that he's told his parents that he's sleeping at Mike's, which reminded me that Mike exists yep. and we haven't seen him forever. And <laughs> hey, look, Mike is back. Uh, and Mike knows that Hank shot Leo, so that's not as much of a secret as maybe it could have been. Uh, but Bobby has gotten the boots, the new shoes, and takes a hammer to them. And finds not money or evidence per se, but a mini cassette. Mm. Well, I haven't seen one of those in a while. I was just gonna say, I love a world where my, where, where micro cassettes exist. Yeah, outside of Cooper's <laughs> dictaphone, yeah. where yeah. we know I mean, there must be one inside. Yeah, poor. I mean, Mike is the the most profoundly useless character on the show. I mean, he's really only there to create the symmetry of Bobby and Mike. Yeah. With you know Bob and Mike in the lodge and everything, but it's like it's it doesn't. It's like he's just an empty vessel. He's just, and you know, you barely even see him with Donna, do you? Like throughout the whole show. No, yeah, maybe. no. He like Donna and him never actually officially broke up, as far as I know. And so at the, up to, to this point, so it's funny. And he just, and he, this this actor does a great job of breathing through his nose and looking angry. Um, but give sure. it to give it to Mike because he's the one who suggests that they get the hammer. Like Bobby was Bobby was done with the boots. He didn't know what they meant. Mike's like, well, no, I've seen people hiding stuff in heels and get a hammer. So, <laughs> but I do like the symmetry of they find a micro cassette that would go in the same kind of tape recorder that Cooper uses. And yeah. ne- next scene, Cooper talking yeah. to Diane. Yep. Yeah. Uh, he he's looking at the remains of the diary. Uh, it references Bob uh, going back to early adolescence. Refers to a friend of her father's. Uh, and she writes, someday I'm going to tell the world about Ben Horn. I'm going to tell them who Ben Horn really is. Hey, everyone, we want you to keep suspecting Ben Horn killed me right now. Yep. I wish I could remember, like, watching this, you know, for the very first time when I didn't know what was happening. Because um, re-watching it, it's like, there's only two there's only two people this could possibly be, right? I mean, like, after the season finale of the first season it just feels like 
there, at one point there's like, oh, it could be anybody. But I mean, by this point, you're like, oh no, it's either it's either one or the other. Well, so, I, I, I was trying to remember when uh, remember watching it, uh, you know, as a young teenager because I absolutely remember getting excited for this and going through with my friends, going, okay, well, it's not Leo. We know it's not Leo. It's not you know this person. We like eliminating everybody and then watching this episode and going, I never thought it was Ben. You know, yeah, like it, I, it was, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it, it was that surprise red herring. It was, you know, so, um, but yeah, which but. is which is actually, you know, that that's good if if it catches you that way. Audrey then shows up and starts telling Cooper that Ben was sleeping with Laura. Of course, Coop has just read this about Ben. Uh, they both know that Ben owns One-Eyed Jacks, but Audrey tells him that as well. And finally, it strikes. Cooper says, "Aha! Without chemicals, he points." And believes that Mike not having his drugs, or, or rather uh, Gerard not having his drugs mm-hmm. and being Mike, fainted when Ben walked in the room at the Great Northern, which is apparently enough under Washington law to issue a warrant for Ben <laughs> Horn's arrest. Sure. Because you you solved the conditions of a riddle. Yes. <laughs> That's what you know, the judge will ask you when he issues the warrant from his bench. This this seems just funny because poor old Truman, his whole role, right? His like his role is to walk in the room holding a cup of coffee. He doesn't like. I just it's he's kind of pointless in this. Yes. It's again like, yeah, another scene to you, create. You need him to have heard it so you don't have to explain yeah. it to him again later. That's really all he's doing there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, it's it's nice seeing it's it's nice seeing Cooper. We haven't seen Cooper talk to Diane in a while. Yeah, right? mm-hmm. and, fair enough. And even though he's giving us the exposition, but laying out all of the stuff that he found from the from the what's from uh, from the diary, you know, which is which is creepy to think about. You you know, uh, Greg, going back to your comment about you know it being risque even for you know at, at risque at the time even now, but talking about like mm-hmm. a friend of her father's molestation, all this sort of stuff. It's just like heavy stuff. Um, but I did like when when Audrey uh, fills him in, and and Cooper's reaction is holy smokes. <laughs> which is a very a very like normally cooper's calm and together but this is a moment where he i feel like he, that's just he, how yep. yeah how blown his mind is yeah exactly <laughs> all right so then we're back at the great northern where mr tojimura is uh, uh kind of surprising to me getting the thumbs up from ben on on the investment in the Ghostwoods estate uh but that's actually not what we're going to get in this scene because the posse shows up, Hawk, Truman, mm-hmm. Cooper, and Andy, uh, and he is Ben Horn is informed that he is wanted for questioning in the murder of Laura Palmer, and then Ben proceeds to act as guilty as possible, <laughs> telling them go, to go away, saying he's going to go out for a sandwich, uh, trying to sneak out of a, a secret panel, and Hawk and Andy have to grab him and handcuff him. And, and, and as he's yelling, no, no, right? Yeah, uh, uh, but... Um, I love, I absolutely love that Michael Antkin seems to exist purely to accuse people of murdering Laura Palmer. <laughs> right? This oh, is, yeah. This is like the third <laughs> time we've heard him say it. Like, he said it to Jacques. He said, you know, we're arresting you for arrest this. for the murder of Laura Palmer. <laughs> you are also under arrest for the murder of <laughs> And then it wasn't the final line, you can't do this to me. It's already done. Yeah. Um, yeah. The um the weird thing is that I mean I I, I didn't hear the your last episode the whole Tajimora stuff just said so weird now that like it just like this scene played out much differently than it did when I watched it before because of that stuff because you know he 
is you know sitting in the background through this whole thing, and then when they all prance out, there's like there's a moment where the camera just focuses on his face, yeah. and it's just like, what's going on? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's well, very it's, weird. It's, it's, it's like my my only thought is that is that any sort of law enforcement involvement is bad for Ben, right? Yes. Even though he knows he's innocent, but given the the mill. Given all the stuff he's involved, what just happened with Audrey, all the the conversation he had with Audrey, all this sort of stuff, he and he, you're Tommy Wright, he reacts guilty because he is guilty, not of this, but he's guilty of crime, of other things, yeah. yeah. And he's yeah. he's a powerful man yeah. who usually just makes these things go away. I, and I think that's the I'm going to go out for a sandwich, which yeah. is like you can't touch me. I'm Ben Horn. The I'm going to go out for a sandwich was fantastic, by the way. It's like he's like know, he's fantastic. like no no you guys go away. I'm going to go get a sandwich. It goes through his secret door. I love it. <laughs> There's like two callbacks to the first episode, right? The first one being the sandwich when her, when his brother yes. comes in yes. having dinner, yep. and then the second the second one. Um, so there's wait, there's the sandwich, and then oh, so when the Swedes is it? I can't remember which which uh, nationality they were. We're we're meeting for Ben to to do business with, and Audrey comes in and says Laura was murdered, and so yeah, they get right. off the daily. Yeah. So it's a, it's a weird parallel to that, I think. Yeah. So, uh, uh, then we get some wind blowing through the trees, which, which is, is always good and important because now, yeah. star- now starts the creepy. Uh, and we, yeah, we are, we are in, in, in we are now beginning our, our shoot yeah. run to the end of this episode in the Palmer house. Uh, the record sort of implying that it's the record player from that morning, but that uh, probably hasn't been playing all day or maybe it has is in the gutter and, uh, just making an ominous click, click click with a little static uh shots of the empty room and then nearly at the end of the scene you finally see sarah crawling down the stairs moaning leland's name and then we finish on the iconic spinning ceiling fan Uh, area ceiling fan in pop culture okay yeah Uh Oh, all right. Well, we're we're getting we're getting there. We're almost there. That's oh, yeah. all right. <laughs> I do have to say, I do love the. I, I, I don't know if we had this officially, but I do like the the, ca- the carpet cam during this, where the carpet sort of ske- you know like crawling along the camera yes. the, along the carpets, very creepy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Uh, and 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 that is going to send chills up my spine, probably a lot of people's spines. Uh, so they give us a quick break by showing us Ben Horn being put in a holding cell. Um, and the log lady happens to be there, uh, and tips them off that there are owls in the roadhouse. So Cooper said, something is happening, isn't it, Margaret? Uh, and then we get a shot of the moon in clouds. Yep. Mm. So, uh, so I don't have any other comments other than, uh, <laughs> because, yeah, you know where, right. You know where it's going to build to now, but even then you're just like, well, it's almost, you know, and this will obviously, uh, grow more near the end of the episode yeah. but it's like this so, at, at weird everything is connected yeah. in a bad way well and, you know? and yeah and, and also it's building building the tension building this the suspension like it's it's like you you without knowing the end result of this you get you're starting to build that momentum to get the sense that and when as soon as cooper says something's happening isn't it margaret it's just like well what the, what the hell is happening um yeah but uh, well, it's it's like a roller coaster to me in that this yeah. is like you're you're going up and up and up and you take a short dip yeah. down to the log lady. And now you're in a valley uh, where Pete Martell is in a kitchen making a snack I love Pete. when Mr. Tojimura shows up. What's he doing there uh, and starts to hug Pete? 
and Pete drops his snack. And then Mr. Tojimura kisses Pete. And then Mr. Tojimura voices changes to a woman's. And if you didn't figure it out, he tells you, Catherine. And Pete hugs her and they laugh and they cry. And the, the only for the very first time did I ever get surprised by this. Every time after, I couldn't believe that Mr. Tojimura took me in at all. But he did. Oh, you look terrible, just terrible. (laughs) Well, I love the lengths that they went for this, because if you go back and watch it, you can tell that's a woman. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. No, I'm ashamed of myself that I didn't figure that out the first time I watched it. And and the the lengths they went through for this to remove Piper Laurie, the actress who plays Catherine, from the credits and replace it with a fake name of Yukio, whatever the... the, the, Oh, that's right. Right? Like, like they sold this. And, like, the the commitment to the surprise is, like, in a day of, you know, like I often say that we'll never, we would, like, if Empire Strikes Back came out today, we would never be able to be surprised by Darth Vader being Luke's father, right? Like that, it was a different time. And the commitment they had to this reveal, uh, naming her Fumio Yamaguchi in the credits is just genius, and I love it. So, uh, good job. And, <laughs> and again, back to the whole Emmy thing, like she, like, she was also nominated, like she was one of these, like, really hot names that sort of like re-energized her career, and she even won the Golden Globe. So, yeah. it was funny that we start season two, and it's like, She's just dead? Yeah. Wait, did is there a contract dispute? What happened? You know, I mean, we know now they wanted to do something weird yeah. with her. Yep. Also, screens were smaller. Resolution wasn't as good back then, you know. Right. I feel like making excuses. Sure. <laughs> Go for it. Well, there's a, well, it's true, but there's also, like, if if they if someone tried to do this today in a 2017 show, it would have to be done in a completely different yeah. manner. <laughs> for obvious For sure. I mean, they could do the same things with the credits and everything, but yeah. but the actual gambit would have to be different. I right. think so. Well, we'd have better makeup artists. Well, that's know. true. Yeah, that's, that's true a good too. Point too. Yeah. Uh, oh, but the trees show up again. Well, that's not a good sign. And we're back to the Palmer House, and the record player is still skipping uh, maniacally, and Sarah is still crawling on the floor, and she sees a white horse, and it was probably the third or the fourth time before I finally got like. Oh, she's been drugged, the white horse. I get it. Uh, The record player keeps going. And then probably the spookiest part of this scene is Leland straightening his tie as if nothing is wrong. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> By the way, the trees that like at the very beginning of this sh- of this scene, um, the tree is, is this, I guess I never put this two and two together, but like it's like lit with one spotlight, and then of course you see as a spotlight becomes, it's almost like the spotlight is the sort of like encroaching horror of Bob approaching. Yeah, it's his spirit. Uh, no, it's, that's that's a don't great. Don't say the B word. Um, <laughs> go, go, going back to teenage Ron mindset. Uh, the shot of the horse, I remember going, what the hell is this? Yes. <laughs> like, I just like that. Even college age Tom didn't like, get it the first time right, around. Right, like the, the crossover, oh. I mean, the crossing over to Lynch territory, because like, you're right, yeah, I mean, the suggestion of being drugged or whatever and a white horse and that sort of thing, but like the white horse and the spotlight and like I remember at that point it was like I'm crossing into something that I cannot fathom and uh, it's scaring me, so, yeah. I also read um, – because, I mean, that was certainly one of the more confusing symbols of this entire series. And, I I mean, people have called it the pale horse of death, but she only sees it when people die. But, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know if that's confirmed throughout the season. But, um, again, I think it's one of those David Lynchian 
uh, things where it's like, I'm going to put it in here and you can, you can make with it what you will. I yeah. mean, obviously the most logical seems the, uh, the heroin line because I'm, don't they, um, yeah, I believe you guys talked about it a couple episodes ago where Audrey, <laughs> they inject heroin and it's, they never mention it by name. Right, but you mentioned yeah. it by its nickname, so it kind of makes sense it would carry through here. Yeah, and so so it's important to note that in the lore, the horse is referred to as the pale horse, um, mm-hmm. and and I don't know. I mean, like having having I just recently watched Firewalk with me, um, but and so where the horse comes up again, and we'll talk about that, you know. But I oh Tom, uh, now that I'm thinking about it, I never got the suggestion that the horse suggested that that Sarah was drugged. Uh, but I would just assume that it was the it was the oncoming of something to happen, you know. Um, yeah. Well, you know, and like, that's the way I the way I interpreted it at first. Yeah. And I and I think Greg, you're right. I think it's that Lynchian thing where it's multiple things. Like it's a white horse, and that's intentional. But it's also a pale horse because it could be death and a horse of the apocalypse, which is a visionary thing. Like it's it's a brilliant move to say this isn't going to be one thing. It's going to stand for lots of different things. And you as the viewer can decide what emphasis you want to put on it. Right. And and Tom, I don't know how deep we want to go in it now, or if we want to do it closer to season three or whatever, but there's lots of theories about the linking of it to other places and the, the, mm-hmm. the small man and, and all that, and Mike and yeah. all that sort of stuff. But it's, it's, yeah, I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was a nod to the lodges too. Yeah. That's, yeah. Some way. Yeah, yeah, some people some people say it's a, yeah. So those of you listening at home who uh, are Twin Peaks fans, you'll recognize the the lodges and the White Lodge. Well, those of you who are new to it, don't worry, it didn't spoil anything. You'll oh, find uh, out about it. But uh, um, yeah. but yeah, no, the, there's the thought that the horse is connected to the White Lodge, and the, and I'm looking on the Twin Peaks Wikia page where they're saying that it's it's an embodiment of intoxication. Um, mm-hmm. which, which would make sense for what was going on with Mrs. Palmer um, or, you know, the elephant in the room or a spirit or a spirit protector of some sort. But uh, mm-hmm. the horse definitely has meaning. So um. then we're on to the roadhouse where the log lady told us there would be owls. But instead we get Julie Cruz. Uh, <laughs> she's back. And the red curtains that are from the other place are also on the stage. And Donna and James are in a booth and they're talking about Harold and James, of course, is having a Coke because he's underage and he couldn't possibly drink in the roadhouse. Uh, <laughs> Log Lady, Truman, and Cooper come in. Uh, James then tells Donna that Maddie is leaving because I guess Maddie didn't tell Donna. Uh, there's a weird sax break that interrupts the song, which I always want, I always feel like is intentionally similar to the sax you get when the man from another place shows up. Interesting. Um, yeah. Donna starts lip syncing to James, which mercifully stops. Uh, the music fades out and Cooper sees an old man at the bar who appears to be the old man who delivered his milk. And then of course, as the linkage continues, the band fades out entirely and a giant appears on stage and begins to repeat the classic line. It is happening again. It is happening again. I mean that, um, the guy who's the giant is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> he only reads those lines, but it's so it's because it's scary with this tinge of like sadness, you know, yeah. which eventually then pervades the whole thing as we'll see. But the, um, and you know, and, and parallels well with the song, but yeah, that, this is like, this scene is so haunting. Yeah, it's so, so haunting. Um, I, my, a couple of notes about this. Up till now, Julie Cruz and the band, who I guess are the house band of the Roadhouse, 
have been doing very, very moody kind of, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, atmospheric songs, right? And, you know, whether it's the main theme song or whatnot. But uh, this is kind of peppy. This is a little bit of a poppy song. It was nice to see it. Which, rockin'. Um, which, rockin', which it's nice to see everyone reacting to that. If you notice when Truman and Cooper and the Log Lady come and sit down, even Cooper starts bopping his head a little. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, Cooper, if, Cooper's yeah. rocking out. Yeah. <laughs> if, if I remember properly, this, Rockin' Back Inside My Heart, is, mm-hmm. isn't on the soundtrack, the TV soundtrack. I can't remember. But regardless... This song, um, they actually released with like dance mixes shortly thereafter. Um, Because I was a I was a DJ in college, and I would play it all the time. Because of course I was a big Twin Peaks fanatic. So you know, I so I think it works in a sense well in this scene because it's like the most upbeat thing she's ever done, and it's a little bit it's a little bit like ridiculous that like this sort of moody chanteuse is even singing at a roadhouse but we're not going to question that right yeah. uh, the fact that it is you have to kind of like take it kind of upbeat and kind of you know sentimental because it's about to go to somewhere very dark yeah and, and that that place that's very dark where it goes is donna lip syncing which is just miserable <laughs> <laughs> but um uh, but i also noticed did you notice also in the background at the bar there's a couple of sailors at the bar because it is fleet week <laughs> So there's some pinball too. Yes. Yep. Yep. I was very (laughs) excited to see that. Um, And uh, also uh, the, the, the waiter from the great Northern or senior drool cup as Albert coined him uh, sit next to Bobby. Bobby's at the bar. Yeah. Yeah. What is Bobby doing there? I don't know. We're going to get to that later on, but Bobby is there Mm. too. So yeah, I have, I have a, I have a theory. Although the final thing I want to say about this scene is the log lady is really into her nuts. Yes. (laughs) Yes, she sure is. Really, really into them. Like her her sticky gum or whatever she, you know, it's uh, it's, I I get the feeling with, with the log lady that that's a financial thing of like, Hey, free food. I'm going to take advantage of that. (laughs) Good blame her. Uh, all right, we only have two more scenes to go, and boy, are they uh, doozies. Uh, we are back at the Palmer house. The record player is still going. Leland's still smiling into the mirror, uh, starting to look a little crazy, and then we see Bob, and that's the moment. That's when you realize that Leland is Bob, and he puts on the gloves, and Sarah is now totally passed out. Uh, Maddie starts calling for Aunt Sarah or Uncle Leland from upstairs and says, it smells like something's burning, which should be a tip-off if you've been paying attention. Uh, Leland slash Bob then chases after Maddie, starts choking her, punching her. Things go into slow-mo as Maddie cries for help. The audio is also slowed down. Leland is punching Maddie. Then he picks her up and starts dancing with her and begins being more Leland-like and moaning Laura's name and saying, my baby. Then Bob comes back and starts being creepily kissing on Maddie. Uh, We fade between Leland and Bob again. Leland moans Laura. Leland says, you're going back. Or Leland says, as Bob Leland says, you're going back to Missoula, Montana, smashes Maddie against a mirror, knocks her out, and then puts a letter under Maddie's fingernail. Oh, God. That's, it's even horrifying to hear you recount, recount it. Yeah, it's, it's, oh. I don't think um, you can do a scene like this better than they did it. Like there's even, even watching it again and seeing a couple things about the camera work that I think were sort of perhaps dated today. I just don't think you can make a scene 
more fright like frightening than this was even though you kind of you know you you kind of knew what was about to happen i think what makes it extra special is it just kind of starts it's not like maddie walks in and she's like what's what's wrong uncle what's happening it's like yeah. he, why are you smiling yeah yeah there's nothing like that she walks in screams and he chases her yeah and it's like so the look on his face because you know ray wise's face is like a weird clown goblin sometimes um it's so frightening how it sort of this t- overtakes him. Um, yeah, it's beautifully done. It's and and it's and uh, so a couple of things is that the moment Frank Silva as an actor, who he's not even an actor, he was a set dresser, right? Like he's he, yeah. you know, like it's but burned into my psyche of my nightmares. And like even you know just the smiling in the mirror shot. Or any of the, or the the chasing Maddie through the living room where he's kind of toying with her, you know, like and kind of going after her. Just literally, this is the stuff of my nightmares. Twenty five years and going, like it, mm-hmm. like it's not stopped, gone away. Um, but uh, but the 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 bouncing between Leland and Bob and Leland and Bob is done in such again a Lynchian way but so dramatic and so you get the clear idea. Oh, these are two entities in the same body. Like and you know so yes, Laura's father is the killer, but it's not Leland. Like and that as a kid that just blew my mind as well. Yeah, and um, and Bob may be driving this body, but he doesn't have full control. Right, because Leland, cause Leland comes out back. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then the the the, the jumping between Leland. Um, uh, hu- you know, hugging her and and crying, oh. saying Laura, Laura, and then cutting oh. to to Bob kissing her, and it's just like oh. what is real. Amazing, mm-hmm. but um, but nothing is more chilling than just like the first shot when Bob punches Maddie, and yeah. I like oh like even watching it now I was like oh that's disturbing this is disturbing. Um, and it, yeah, and I think two things that make this really effective is one going back to the spotlight, yeah. which now I watch the whole thing and see where spotlights happen because when you see the spotlight on her, I'm just like oh the spotlight means that she's next. Yep. Like that, that that's one thing because the spotlight recurs in other ways throughout the show. I want to make sure that's what it really means. But it just the creating that lighting is eerie. And then if you'll notice, the the music is really subdued, yep. which mm-hmm. you can never say about Twin Peaks that the music is subdued in a scene. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. No? Yeah, generally not. It's yeah. yeah. But here it is like almost imperceptible it's very very minimal um because of course it's and that's what makes the 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 scenes that frame it even more effective because they're beautifully melodic yeah so i think this other like weird like disorienting effect well it's a yin, it's a yin and yang effect almost it's uh which is <laughs> definitely so um before we and this move- was the scene that i was i was mentioning at the at the beginning of the show where it is difficult to watch yes this mm-hmm. scene and yet he is hewing to the standards of primetime television of 1990. And I almost feel if he made it bloodier or he made it more graphic, it would make it easier to watch because you would say, oh, okay, this is over the top. Right. The fact that you don't see blood, the fact that it's entirely psychological terror up until he starts punching her at the end. And because it's been psychological terror, those punches land so much harder. I think that the constriction makes the scene land mm-hmm. even m- more dramatically. Yeah. Ugh. 
Well, well, oh, geez, it's, it's, it really bothers me, Tom. In a way, like this, I mean, I have no complaints with it, but it's all, it almost kind of ends a little anticlimactically because then all of a sudden he reaches over and puts the fingernail, he puts the letter in the fingernail, I'm like, oh, right, I forgot he's doing that, <laughs> too. Like, it was like it was so intense and so violent. Yeah, yeah. Um, God. That, and then it's I like mean, a little bit of, of, of bureaucracy, a little bit of bookkeeping he <laughs> yeah, has to do at yeah. the end. Bookkeeping, uh, I got to do. I got to finish spelling this. Yeah, <laughs> but um, so going back to the the concept of keeping secrets and and uh, the Tajimura secret, but also this secret, they actually shot three versions of this scene. Um, it had one version was just all Bob, one version was all Leland, and that's how they intermix the two, right? Sure. So, um, and then they shot a third where it's Ben Horn. Oh, wow. And and they purely did that to avoid it leaking and getting out who the killer was, you know. So they purposely and Richard Bamer, the actor who played Ben Horn, knew this, so he played along. He was happy to, but uh, it, that that's how they protected the secret, so you didn't know exactly who it was. Um, so that's how they kept it from leaking out. Um, but which is a neat little postscript. But my thought is, Jesus, poor Cheryl Lee. <laughs> Oh, did you have to do this three Seriously. times? Right, yeah. <laughs> oh God. Who knows? Who knows? Like this, these scenes are never going to be used, right, but yeah. I have to do them anyway. <laughs> well, yeah. forget this. Forget the fact that she's already done. You know, more than a few scenes as a dead body. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> you know. Oh man. Uh, we finish up then. It, it would be tempting to finish this episode right there with the with the the fingernail, but we go back to the roadhouse. Uh, we see the giant and Cooper still. Uh, because while he's saying it's happening again, the implication is this is happening. Like he's saying it as it's happening. The giant then fades out. The band comes back. The old man, uh, what do you, what did you call him? Drooly McDrooly? Senor Senor Drool Cup. Senor Drool Cup turns around at the bar, uh, ambles over and tells Cooper, I'm so sorry. Uh, then goes back and sits down next to a bewildered Bobby. Donna inexplicably starts crying. Uh, and it's a fade out on Cooper to the curtains with credits over Cooper still uh, with the song Come Back and Stay playing. Chilling ending. Absolutely. Chill. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, yeah, I, I, you're right, Tom. They could have ended it on the violence, but this is a better ending because it I almost, I, I, because it, it ties it all back. And I think what you've got is, is you've got some sort of cosmic wave going out where Bobby is confused, Donna is crying because they all know something related to Laura just happened. You know, and I don't know. Somehow. Yeah, somehow. I don't even think they could explain it, right? Well, and I even think that that's why um, I remember being struck by this scene and having the same conversation with myself many years ago when I watched it and just being like, well, why is Bobby there? There's no reason for Bobby to be there at all. Um, And I think it's, I mean, I just, as a theory, that the people are drawn to the lodge for some reason and so you know compare it with the reaction of james who's like what's going on yeah but bobby's like shaken yep. you can mm-hmm. see it on his face and i just always thought it's because he has a sort of a different connection with laura than maybe one that we even took for granted uh, that he didn't that was different than james well let's, um, let's let, also knowing what we know about the show let's not forget that bobby is the son of major briggs 
Mm. Right, oh, and, mm-hmm. and there's connections that for people who yeah. are just watching us for the first time, we'll find out. Bobby, or not Bobby to spoil has spent it. a lot of time in the woods. Donna has right. spent time in the woods. So, I mean, there, yeah. there's so many different ways to see them being connected cosmically. I think it's safe to say though that when Senor Drool Cup comes over to say he's sorry to Cooper, it's we think it's he's sorry because it happened again, but it's really he's sorry that you got shot and I didn't help you. Yeah. Right. No, it plays both ways perfectly. <laughs> but yeah. um, but the but, <laughs> yeah. but what I think is what I think is just beautiful in terms of the cinematography is the you know the sh- the the ending of the of the of the episode the the shot of Julie Cruz and the lighting going red right and that that's allowing it to bring in the shot of these red curtains and really what it is is it's like closing almost closing the curtain on Act One. Yeah. You know, or, or, or whatever act we're on, you know, and it's like, yeah, you want to know who killed Laura Palmer. That's who killed her. But now and the, the curtains also signify, but now we're going to go in another direction because now you got to know who is that guy. Right. Well, how did how did Leland become Leland Bob? Yeah. Or, is the sheriff going to be able to catch him? Right. They think it's Ben Horn. What's going to happen with that? I mean, there there are threads to continue on here. It, answers, uh, it, it simultaneously answers the question you wanted to answer and leaves you with five more questions at least. Which is the know? best. Yeah, it's exactly. the best. It, the, the, well, the worst shows... Uh, never answer the questions. Uh, the the next level up is they answer the questions, but they're not really that s- satisfying because they just push things off into new questions. But this is the perfect example to me of you you legitimately answered my question. You didn't just say it was Bob; it was Leland. Yeah. Uh, but you've you've given me new questions that I wouldn't have had before. And and. You know, I- I was going to say, just just the only tragic part about this, it's such a brilliant ending to Act 1 that you're just like, oh my god, Act 2 is going to be so yeah. much better. Right. <laughs> Well, and and it's and it's funny because you say that that you know that that Tom, you you kind of uh, praise it for answering questions, but this left a lot of bad tastes in people's mouths after this yeah. episode. And we talked about the rating slide, but after this episode, they just continue to tank. And I never, I was never really sure as I look back on it, you know, from a history standpoint, if it was the. Unsat- you know, like the Lynchian answer to the question was unsatisfying or did just the, you know, as we know, there are two distinct parts of this country, right? And the middle part of this country, I can't imagine loved incest and violence and all this sort of stuff. So I wonder if you obviously people- haven't spent a lot of time in the middle part uh, sure, of this that's country. A good point. Yeah, that's a very good point. <laughs> but, Depends but, what state you're talking about. But yeah, I got to wonder. I, if- I don't know if it was that so much yeah. as. ABC really, I, I remember that reaction back then, and I can't even remember exactly what my reaction was, but ABC had promised you will know who, who killed Laura Palmer, really? and this felt yeah. like a cheat based on what ABC had told us, Yeah. right? This wasn't the sheriff and Cooper carting him off to jail, right. uh, and I think that's what everyone expected. So is I it- think that, yeah, sorry, the, uh, that the big murder mystery of the past decade was who shot J.R., and it, you know, it's kind of in a way set a standard for these silly kind of cliffhangers. And the thing is, the difference is, you know, David Lynch and Mark Frost aren't making anything really silly. It's actually being crafted in a far more artistic manner. But a lot of people may have been watching it and going into that with just the like, well, you know, that kind of like, you know, uh, cliffhangery. Like, I want to know if there's like several uh, uh culprits and then finally one of the one of them is randomly the killer you know that's yeah. not what it says leland was not randomly the killer there's there's a million clues leading up to this revelation yeah. and so but maybe that's you know that and the leland bob combo is 
some people took as a cheat because they're like, ah, what's this artsy fartsy crap? It wasn't really him. Yeah. Like yeah. that sort of thing. And, and that's why it's funny because, you know, we got a lot of, we got a lot of crap from some of you in the listening audience because we, we, we didn't adhere to the no spoiler rule that we never established. Uh, but we had mentioned that it was, that Leland was the killer. But, but even then, if you didn't know that leading up to this, even if you, like I tell people watch Twin Peaks, they all know like who killed Laura Palmer, her father. That's the answer. And I tell people, I'm like, yeah, no, it's much more than that. Still watch it because it'll still blow your mind. And, and that's why I wasn't too worried about us saying it earlier in this podcast run because it, the, the layer of who Leland is and Bob and all the stuff like that, that's the meat, you know? So it's good stuff. You know, there's a, a, maybe as another theory as to why it didn't really ignite. Um, back in, you know, 1990, it's not like there were a lot of shows that had sci-fi fantasy horror elements. Mm. At that time. And so this, you know, was quirky. The Bob stuff, and then of course many other things that happened later, turn it into like a sort of like a twisty science fiction show. Sure. And so it's in a way, um, it's maybe some people just like, you're, you're sold me a completely different g- g- bill of goods all of a sudden. I don't like these types of shows. I mean, now, of course, because of Twin Peaks being so influential, there are so many more shows that combine realism and fantasy in the way that this show did. But I think that maybe that was a little bit ahead of its time. Well, yeah, we would never, we, we talked about this before. We would never yeah. have, we would never have, um, uh, lost and, you know, shows like, shows like that, uh, that, that add this level of mysticism and, and, you know, mm-hmm. and yeah, so uh, yeah, you're totally right. But, um, wow. Uh, yeah. I think that's a very good point. Yeah. Uh, okay. So there we go. Uh, Twin Peaks yeah. is over. We know who killed our pop. <laughs> no, we still got, we still got quite a number of episodes to go, Tom. All <laughs> oh, right. I got, I guess you're, I guess you're right. Uh, I'm so jealous of you guys cause you're going through, this is such a great way to set yourself up for the new season because it's you're going through very methodically. We get to all really, if you are old fans, we get to rethink all of these episodes and enjoy them like an old friend yep. or an old me, depending on some of them. And by the time you get to the end, you're, you're like, unlike all of us throughout the past 20 years, well, by the time you get to the end, you're going to have t- more new episodes. There'll be right? another one. I know. It's great. You know? It's I, amazing. I'm so yeah. excited about it. Yeah, I yeah. cannot wait. All right, uh, Diane, note this. Uh, I, I have a very small note, and it's it's not even important to the plot of the show, but my, my postscript note is when we go to the sheriff's office at one point, there's a guy sitting in Lucy's seat at the front desk. It's not Andy, who's the only other person we've seen sit in there. We yeah. don't know where Lucy is. I guess she's still uh, off, supposedly, at her aunt's. And no, her I'm sisters, like, who's her that sister. guy? Her, she's at her sister's. That's not that's right. not the temp from the the Kelly girl type place. Who's 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 the guy? I want to know his story. I know I I know that too. I wonder if he's just like another you know deputy that we just for some reason don't see because he works on a different shift. Yeah, or something. well, yeah, morning shift. Or I something. could yeah. I could tell you guys that it is a sheriff's deputy played by the actor Dave Bean. Um, who who well, is look a, at that? Who is a tell? Is IMDb is a wonderful thing. Um, he was not credited. <laughs> he's not credited, but it was him. And this guy has worked. He this is one of his early jobs. Before this, he played a detective in Unsolved Mysteries in 1990. Um, but he's acted in a bunch of stuff. And most recently, he was in uh, an episode of Modern Family. So oh, all right. Yeah, so there you go. Oh. I just I'm like, why wasn't it just another another like plain clothes person? And then I would assume like, oh, that's the temp, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> 
But well, I guess the idea is they never hired a temp, and that's why Sheriff that's, was shooting got, her off. Yeah, they need Andy for the Great Northern. So, yeah. um, uh, Greg, did you have any uh, new observations after watching this? Or? Um, no, other than just being struck by, um, like when I, wa- I mean, like when I watched it before, it felt like all the ingredients, like the silly parts, the scary stuff, it mixed together in this like wonderful alchemy. And I really, I think that's why the show is so important, but it is funny going through this scene by scene and then isolating those experiences. You know, it's like a Twin Peaks episode is more than the sum of its parts, I guess. So even though you have those silly, silly scenes with Ed you know, and Nadine, I think as a whole, um, it's almost like it's like a, that you're catching a breath in terms of just how the show is edited. So, um, I I think I was able to really appreciate that more by identifying these little scenes and realizing, Oh, they actually don't all work like that well. And I, you know, I've been going through this shows, some of the episodes afterwards, and it's the same kind of thing where it's like, well, individual scenes, like some of them are just downright terrible, but in the sort of like whole fabric of the whole episode, it, it kind of works to make this, the good scenes better. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, yeah, that, that's, I mean, the, the thing about Twin Peaks is that for me, at least looking back on it is it's the, it's the woeful inconsistency, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's the, you know, as much as as much as I love and and want to get lost in the world of David Lynch, he couldn't you know be there to do every episode, right? Um, right. It, you know, in fact, you know, looking at looking at the the rest of this season, um, he doesn't return until the finale. So yeah. we're gonna, we're going to go fifteen more episodes mm-hmm. before we get that taste of David Lynch. And he was such a visionary with this, and he just you know he he moved on to the next project, right? And um, and I think that, you know, like there's so many theories about why it faltered and all that stuff, which, which Tom will, will, will probably, you know, 20 year quarterback we'll at, the end, at the end of the season. close yeah, up exactly. as we go. Yeah. So, but, um, but to wrap this up, my, my observations, my, for Diane, my notes were, uh, at the double R diner, uh, the soup of the day was split pea and lamb, mm-hmm. which, which, yeah, which I always wanted to get. And then Greg, you actually pointed this out earlier. Uh, I, I am a active pinball player. I, I, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm in a league here in New York and all that stuff. Uh, so I was very excited to see the sailors playing pinball at the roadhouse. Uh, they had not just one, but two pinball machines. So uh, very <laughs> cool. Very, very cool. Go ahead, some extra details because, um, but because it wasn't in high definition, I was right. like trying to like look. I was looking at Ben Horn's desk and like freeze framing. I was like, "What is that book? I want to know." But I couldn't. Sorry, it's it's funny. It's t- it's funny because like the, I love finding that little like the breakdancing kid in the first yeah, episode yeah. and stuff like that. Um, but uh, you know, like looking as these episodes that are really beefy in terms of content, you don't have as many of those wacky things because they're so focused on what they on what's what's going on. Well, in yeah, because ev- everything needs to be pointing. Yeah, chemicals or not, get it to what's going to happen at the end. Um, going episode. going back quickly to the pinball machines, the two pinball machines in the Roadhouse were one is called Shangri La, which was uh, from 1967 and has a tiki theme. You know. Oh, and like and the other one is uh, is a game called Suspense, and has got a very Saul Bass Vertigo esque back glass art. So you really got to you know whoever was and that was released in 1969. So whoever was set dressing the Roadhouse, those pinball machines were put there for a reason. Oh yeah, yeah I mean so. also 1960s, but also yep. the themes of them. That's perfect. Yeah, so I like that. So there's my there's my observation for Diane. 
<laughs> well, let's head over to the town hall uh, to see what folks have been telling us at feedback at damnfinepodcast.com. We've got Rob from Anaheim who wrote, loving the podcast and finally got caught up this past week. Glad you made it. Uh, he said, I've seen Twin Peaks during its original run once when I showed it to a friend, and now I've just finished showing it to my fiance. Had an observation and maybe some clarity. He actually had a couple, but we picked this one to talk about on the show. Without chemicals, he points, always meant to me that when they denied the one-armed man his medication, he pointed the way to the killer, which he did. This was used to determine at least that the killer was in the Great Northern, which they were. Uh, Coop and the boys were off a little, but if the real killer had stood before Mike, he would have named them. So, th- the, so yeah, we we speculated what the ke- without chemicals he points from the moment that we heard it, right? We thought I I thought it was because of the syringe as a point, you know, and all that sort of stuff, and it makes sense in this episode. But was it because the stink of Bob from Leland was on Ben? Was Leland in the building? Was Leland and we didn't see? Like I wonder. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I didn't see Leland in that shot. I mean, we thought we we assume he freaked out because of Ben, and and I guess in my head I always just I wondered because Ben knows Leland, right? But yeah, but so yeah, did, I feel like without chemicals, he points was the first time he freaks out in the bathroom. Okay, and okay. then this time he was just having a reaction to not having his meds. I don't know, Greg. Where do you stand? Um, I kind of like the interpretation, um, of it, uh, having something to do with the drugs. I mean, with the, um, the syringe, uh, the syringe, sorry. But, um, again, it's another, you know, I, I feel like when they're jotting these ideas down in a room and they're like what could that mean what could mean it could mean this it could mean this i'm like well let's not explain it too much and let's yeah yeah decide um again i mean it's i feel like i'm taking the the lessons from from other david lynch movies like mulholland drive and um inland empire where it's full of those things where it's like oh he just came up with something that's weird it has four or five possible explanations but not one specific one so um I could see that being born born out in this example. So I, I have pulled up the episode and I'm scrolling through it, and because because there's so much chaos going on in the lobby at this time, right? And because um, uh, I thought maybe Leland is hiding in the shadows, or whatever, but he's not. He's totally not in the nope. scene. Mr. Tojimora in the camera. Mr. Tojimora is, but uh, uh-huh. <laughs> <it's>, uh, oh, yes. <laughs> Great. Well, uh, thank you for the email, Rob, and keep them coming, folks. You can comment on the episode at damnfinepodcast.com or email us feedback at damnfinepodcast. Uh, what a pleasure to have you along with us, Greg Young. Tell oh. folks uh, more about where they can find you. Oh, sure. Uh, it's been a um, this has been so much fun. It's been fun to like dust off my rusty memory and revisit my love affair with this show. <laughs> but the um, you can find me. Uh, I have two podcasts: the Bowery Boys New York City History and the brand new one called The First. Which when I hang up with you, I'm going to edit and release tomorrow. Um, uh, you can find both of those on iTunes. Just search for the Bowery Boys or search for the first stories um, and subscribe to those. And you can go to the blog BoweryBoysHistory.com uh, where you can find all sorts of junk relating to the both of those shows. 
<laughs> junk. Excellent. They're better than junk, Greg. Well, actually, they're way better. Well, so I've been I've been a huge fan of the Bowery Boys for years as being a you know a New Yorker and loving the history aspect of it. But actually, Tom, I think you would love uh, the first because Greg gets into some really interesting subjects with that. And I know yeah, so, you, I know you've got a lot of respect for history, Tom. So yeah, very well, cool. I'll spoil the the one that's coming out tomorrow. Um, the one that will be out by the time the time this show is out is the um, the invention of the bikini. <laughs> which is far more interesting than you than you, you think um it's not just about a nuclear explosion it's not just about a it's anyway it's it's about the sort of changing the changing expectations of what women wear over like 50 or 60 years and how it changed so drastically so that's the kind of show it is and every week i do like a it's pretty much the invention of things like telephone or um the electric chair the vaccine that kind of thing that sounds fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm definitely going to check it out. Check the it out. first. Yeah. Great Go job. take sure. a look, folks. Yeah. Uh, and don't forget to support us on Patreon. If you've got an extra dollar and you'd like to kick it our way, it helps us defray the cost of doing the show. Patreon.com slash podcast. Thanks to everybody who's already doing so. But follow us on Twitter at DamnFineCast and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening, folks. We will be back next time when we will go for a drive with a dead girl in episode eight of season two. Until then, I'm Tom. And I'm Ron.